From WNET in New York, welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at the world of public media. I'm Tom Stewart. Today, a follow-up to our recent podcast with filmmaker Abigail Disney. Following a screening of her film, The Armor of Light, at New York's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, Ms. Disney and the film subjects, the Reverend Rob Shank and Lucy McBath, are joined by New York City Civil Service Commissioner Rudy Washington and the Reverend A.R. Bernard of New York's Christian Cultural Center. They explore the issues raised by the film in a conversation moderated by Jack Ford of WNET's Metro Focus. I'm an evangelical minister. That goes to the core of my identity. My constituency would be conservative, very conservative. In my community, we talk about the sanctity of life, the value of every human life. When I would hear about shootings, I would pray for the people but I never thought it would ever happen to us. We have replaced God with our guns as the protector. It's, it's so important and so vitally important that you help. They will listen to you. Brothers and sisters, we must be very careful that in respecting the Second Amendment, we don't violate the Second Commandment. The Bible's very plain about a man who don't protect his wife and kids is worse than an infidel. Is that a, a pro-life ethic? It absolutely yes. is, Rob. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Let's pray. Father, we know there's a lot of people in this country that would like to register guns and take them away. If we take guns away, people are just going to kill people with something else. So what we need is Jesus and the gospel and a sidearm. This doesn't speak to that. When faith becomes inseparably linked to a political position, we become vulnerable to selling our souls. That's what this is all about, fighting for life. I'm taking a big risk, and I'm hoping to persuade some people. I am here today to challenge my fellow clergy. Let us cast off the works of darkness, fear, ignorance, hatred, vengeance, and put on the armor of light. Let's pray. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we thank you for the time you spent this evening and for staying with us here. Here's the thing. A good film will entertain you. A great film will make you think. And I strongly believe that you just saw a great film. What we hope to do this evening is continue that process of making you think. I had a, a, a mentor, legendary Fred Friendly. Many of you might be familiar with Fred's work, often referred to as the conscience of television news. And Fred would always say, whenever we were engaged in a conversation such as this, he'd say the purpose is not to make up anybody's mind. Rather, it's to make the agony of decision-making so intense that you can escape only by thinking. Hmm. Which is really a wonderful mantra to use for anything in your life. 
But we hope that by continuing the conversation tonight with these folks, we can help you to continue to think through this. Because if you learned nothing from the film, you learned how complicated and complex this is. As Reverend Shanks said, it's a long and complicated road that he's traveling. So we wanted to continue that conversation here. And I'm going to start, Reverend Bernard, with you. Suppose I'm, I'm a member of your congregation. And I come in to you one day and I say, Reverend, I'm, I'm troubled by something. I want to talk with you about this. You know me. I'm a good person. I'm a family person. I work hard. I'm thinking about buying a gun. What's your first response to me? I'm troubled, too, at the thought of you wanting to purchase a gun. Um, I would ask... But you, you know me. You know I'm a good person. But I would why, ask why. Why would you be troubled? Yeah, I, I would ask why. Well, suppose, I, I would want to know that they've thought it through. And Suppose I said to you, you asked me why, and I say, you know, it, it's just a sense I have. I, I know fairly recently the Supreme Court said, I, I am certainly entitled to it. We know what the Constitution says. I hope... I hope I will never have to use it. But there's a part of me that says, maybe it'd be a good thing for me to have, just in case. I would ask them if they really consider the responsibility that goes along with having that kind of power and being an imperfect human being. And if I, my response to you was, I have. I, I have, I've thought it through, I've talked over with my family, I think I'm a responsible human being. Never been in trouble before. So I, I just think it may well be a good thing for me to have. Now what do you say to me? Choices have benefits and choices have consequences. Mm. And you must be willing to deal and be responsible for the consequences as you are the benefits. Lucy, what, what would you want I'm Reverend glad you Bernard. stopped picking on me now. Okay. <laughs> I, promise, I promise I'll come back to you. <laughs> Lucy, what would you want Reverend Bernard to say to me when I come to him and I pose that question to him? I want him to say exactly what he said. Mm-hmm. Because absolutely, he, even in his rhetoric, it's not a matter of him trying to tell you what to do with your life. It's not a matter of him telling you um, what he thinks that you should do. He's allowing you as a human being to make your own choices, but giving you the information that you need to make a sound spiritual decision, hopefully to make a sound spiritual decision. But the most important thing is that you say the implications, the ramifications of having the gun. That's the key. And so that's what I would look to hear. Would it make any difference to either of you if in this conversation what I said to Reverend Bernard is, here's why I want a gun. I'm afraid. You know where I live. It's not a great neighborhood. There have been, there have been break-ins. My, my apartment was broken into. There have been beatings out on the street. I'm afraid, and I want a gun. Does that change the conversation at all? You make me afraid of your fear because I don't know where your fear will take you. And now I become a possible target of that fear. Reverend Shank, I want to ask you, because you say this in the film, 
you talk about the notion of, of this sort of inviting fear into our lives. Um, and it, in some ways, it, it overwhelming faith for us. But how would you then respond to me? Again, you know me. I'm a member of your congregation. I'm a good person. I, I work very hard. But I say to you, I, things have changed in my life. I'm afraid to walk on the street. At night, I have locks on all of my doors. I have bars on my windows. And I just am not comfortable with letting somebody break into my house. I need something to protect myself. So what do you tell me to do? First of all, I say, I know a pastor you should talk to. <laughs> and now I know why this man is legendary in my community, because he's a consummate pastor. And I mean that quite sincerely, because that's the kind of pastoral guidance I think that we need. And of course, if you'd permit me to wax preachy, I might start by reminding that, reminding you of the words we hear repeatedly in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and certainly constantly throughout the ministry of Christ. Do not be afraid. Fear not. But, and, and, and I say to you, I understand that, and, and I read my Bible, and it's important to me. But the fact that the words are there don't actually make me any less fearful. Of course. So of course. how do I reconcile that? I say it to you, help me. You tell me the words, but it, 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 it cannot defeat what I see out on the streets there. I'm still, I'm a good Christian who's terribly afraid. Yes, and that's a very real feeling. And I would want to affirm that. We all feel it. We've all been afraid. We all have times when we are fearful. I have to tell you, I have the blessing of being married to a psychotherapist, which means I get a lot of free therapy. Although the best therapy I've had is the therapy I've paid for. Um, and and I had a therapist, wonderful Christian uh, therapist, who used to leave me with the question, Let, let's stay curious for a few minutes about your fear. And let's explore that fear. And sometimes when we name it, and we, uh, I would like to say, we prayerfully explore it together, and we start examining it, we find out it really isn't so well-founded. And, and, and a lot of that fear can be dispelled, but I would go with the pastor's counsel, too, uh, that in taking on a lethal weapon into a place of fear only exacerbates the fear, because now there is something else of terrible consequence that's present in the equation. So there may be even more to be fearful of. I, I think we're created in the image of God. That means that we have a certain genius of God in us, and we can find creative solutions to that fear that isn't the shortcut that we talk about in the film. Commissioner Washington, let me ask you to get in on this conversation here. First of all, the scenario I'm presenting, not terribly unusual, 
What do you think the response should be by well, Reverend Bernard I, to I, me and I, my fear? I, I think um, my take on this is completely different because I'm not a pastor. Um, and what this film did do for me was provoke a, a different line of thought, Reverend. I, that exchange with you and the three other pastors was very interesting um, because I realized within the argument of the Second Amendment, within the urban setting, there is a different, there is a subset to this argument. You see, I come at this from a different angle. I've been around too many dead bodies and I walked amongst the dead and I've seen evil up close. So, and, and, and when I look at Chicago, when I became deputy mayor and came into New York City in 1994, we had 2,100 murders that year. When we walked out, we had under 400. And I went to a hospital over on Roosevelt Island that was basically full of nothing but young teenagers that were shot. People forget about them. They're paralyzed, can't walk, they're in wheelchairs, and they'll be, the, they'll be that way the rest of their life. If something will bring tears to your eyes, as an African-American man, and I see this, and I see, you know, in, in well, last year, eight, nine months ago, in Chicago, a nine-year-old kid lured into an alley, three bullets put into him to send a message to the father. You know, I, I see that, and there's almost an uncontrollable rage, but I often go to pastor, and you started the film out with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I know a lot of people don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. And he said, not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. Uh, for the audience here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was from Germany and he was a pastor. Guess what? He went to seminary a few blocks from here. And guess what informed a lot of his ministry? And this was in the 30s. He went to Abyssinia, right? And saw Christianity from a different perspective. He later went back to Germany and, and brought forth the argument about what Hitler was doing. Hence, I don't have to finish the story. You know, Hitler grabbed him and that was the end. Uh, we heard Ms. Jordan make reference to Corinthians 7, you know, seek my faith. Turn away and I'll heal your land. We heard references to Ephesians 6, but it was only part of it. Put on the whole armor of God. The other part of it is we're in a spiritual war. And I often go to pastor and I talk about this spiritual war because as a Christian, I feel this war didn't just start yesterday for us in the inner cities as Christians, it started 40, 50 years ago when they started trying to remove Jesus Christ out of, the, out of the public space. And I think when you begin to look at this argument about gun violence, and we talk about young black men, which is a taboo topic, it leads you back to the family, which is another taboo topic, which leads you back to what has happened to us to be so far away from the word of God. You know, and, 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 and it's part of what I constantly query pastor about. You know, the silence. Uh, you made rep reference to Edmund Burke. You know, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. We've sat by as the church body and did nothing 
over the years. And we're now in a spiritual crisis where guns are, are proliferation. The last census was there's 320 million Americans on the books. There are more guns than people. So we're chasing the symptom. I believe we got to chase the cause. And that's the separation from the word of God. Yeah, if, if I may, and, 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 and uh, Rudy Washington very beautifully brought out that we can focus so much of our attention and this, this discussion on the gun itself. He brought out the realities in our communities that the violence that we see is a violence that comes from an aggression rooted in alienation caused by marginalization of a people. And when we don't begin to deal with that marginalization, we cannot think that we can somehow turn that aggression off. It's not going to happen. Let me ask about it. And Abby, I want to bring you in on this conversation. We, we've heard, and Lucy, you talk about this, the need for change. And it's something that we, we hear often. But here's something that struck me. And, and, and Abby, you lived through this. And let me ask you if it struck you also. In watching this, you get the sense that those who, who believe in the gun rights, who have expressed their opinion here, have a depth of devotion to that, a depth of passion to that belief that rivals almost any religious belief and passion. Is, 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 that, is, is that accurate? Did you find that? Beyond that, I would say it is a religious belief and passion. Um, because, as Lucy so profoundly says, they have taken God and replaced him with a gun. Because really, essentially, that's what they're doing. They're carrying, you know, ontology around in their pockets. It's the in, an, a, instrument of absolutes. It is a, a game changer in every room it walks into, which is why, as much as I revere both of these men here, and I do, I disagree respectfully, the gun does make a difference. Yes, there is a problem in society. There is violence. I agree a thousand percent with everything that you just said, except for the fact that if you hand someone a knife, it's a very different equation. If you hand someone an AR-15, the weapons, the damage that they can cause is very profound. And, and above that, there is an eroticization of the weapon itself. There is a love of this object. There is a romance around violence that brings more violence, that invites violence. And, it, and, and in the marginalized population, it represents a life of meaning. And so we, the weapon is, we, we tend to divide these things into Manichaean options. And that's not how life works, ever. So this, this is not a, just a cultural fight, and it's not just a fight against guns. We need to be fighting on both of these fronts because there is a lot of low-hanging fruit that will make an enormous difference, like background checks. Everybody talks about Chicago, but Chicago's a very interesting contrast with New York. You know, New York has a relatively low murder rate given the size of the city that it is. It's one of the safest, largest cities in the country. Chicago, what's the difference between Chicago and New York? Well, actually, if you know gun laws, you know that Chicago is surrounded 360 degrees by states with extraordinarily lax gun laws, and New York is surrounded by states that have much 
stronger gun laws. So that's not a small difference. That's the difference between getting in your car and driving 40 minutes and filling a pickup truck for $20,000 with a lot of weapons and then setting up camp on a block and selling them to anyone who has the money for them. So, so the weapon is a problem because it is an instrument of great carnage but also an invitation to participate in a romance about masculinity and about meaning that is a tragic and seductive um, dead end. When we look... When we look for a path to change here, I, I was struck by the conversation you, Reverend, had with your, your three fellow travelers in a room who, who share very deep and passionate beliefs about certain things. And within a very short period of time, that conversation deteriorated into finger pointing and shouting. And what struck me is then if in fact, and I, Abby, I think you're absolutely right, the, the notion of gun ownership and gun rights has become a religion. We all know that one of the most difficult things to, to do in any interpersonal relationship is change somebody's mind about their religion. So, what do we do? Reverend, I'll go, come to you first. What do we do for people who now have, have accepted this as their religion, and again, you know, the great paradox, they can be good people. They can be the, the man, the, the, the member of the congregation who I was when I came to Reverend Bernard, and I said, I'm a good man. You know I'm a good man. I'm a family man. I work hard. I want a gun to protect myself. So what do we do? And we do raise that very concern in the film. If you remember when I'm walking through the field of firearms at the NRA convention, and we pose the question, can good people, uh, you know, collaborate in a way that brings uh, about a bad outcome? And, 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 and that's one of the things, uh, Abby set the tone when she started this project, that we would create safe space where Everyone's voice could be heard, where we affirmed and honored people. We didn't treat them with contempt. Uh, and, and there are good people who are gun owners. And there are good people among the membership of the NRA. I met some of them, and, I, and I've met them along uh, the path on this project. So it's not... You know, you own a handgun, therefore you are a villain. That just isn't the case. But I do think this is a process. I don't think it's something that will happen as much as I believe in miracles, and I do, and there are miraculous conversions, and I had one or two of those. Uh, and, and some of us in this room would testify to the same thing. God can change hearts, and prayer uh, is part of that process. Uh, but I think as, as, we, as we talk, first of all, we give voice to this, and we are hoping to create space where people who in the past have been timid about sharing their concerns, and there have been many pastors who have come to me, and they've literally whispered, literally with a whisper, they've said, I'm with you. 
I share your concern. I just dare not voice it now. I would split my congregation right down the middle, and that's especially true of people in the middle of the country. So that we have to create a safe space. That's how this whole project started when Abby and I had our first dinner meeting, and Abby said, if we could put away the things we disagree on and focus on the things we do agree on, that we do care about. And there are things, of course, that gun owners and non-gun owners care about. They share in common. We can start that prayerful conversation. I'm doing that in my evangelical Christian community. And we're finding people who do have concerns and, and we've even had some who have said, look, I've got multiple firearms at home. I've got a stockpile of ammunition. And you have given me reason to pause and think differently and pray about that. And hearts and minds can be changed. And I think I'm optimistic enough. I don't mind telling you honestly, since I seem to be among some friends, that uh, I started out fairly pessimistic on this journey, but the more people I find who share those concerns and are now giving voice to it, I'm optimistic we can bring a new consensus. And then once we do that, we can bring that to bear on our other decisions about who we elect and what legislation we support and so on. But it's a long process. I don't think this will happen tomorrow or next year or five years. We may be in this for 10, 20, or 30 years, I'm willing to give that much time to it. It's that important. Is it a, is it a geographical battle? Is there something about Definitely. the idea that with the conversation we're all having Definitely. and what we're talking about as, as New York it, area it folks? It jumps out at you. I mean, Rev, Reverend, you'll find that you're in friendly territory just about in any inner city because instinctually, I think people understand everybody can't walk around with a gun when you got 8.2 million people living on top of each other. I mean, when we have defense arguments, all of a sudden it turns into Hatfield and McCoys. I mean, so I think instinctually within any inner city, people were like, well, you know, I don't know about everybody having guns if that's a good idea. However, debate is different once you leave the city, you know, and, and, and I would be careful. I wouldn't demonize people by saying it's their religion. Remember, the architects of the Second Amendment was George Mason and Madison. And it was the fear of government and understanding the nature of man that they put that Second Amendment there. Abby, yeah. Okay. I call the Second Amendment the dangling participle from hell. It is the worst written sentence in the history of mankind. It goes like this. A well-regulated militia being essential to the preservation of a free state, comma, the right of the people. Now, how many people teach English? Hmm. The subject of the predicate does not in any way refer to the participle in the preface. This is a dangling participle, right? Basic. Okay, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And for 200 years... Be necessary the preservation of the free state. Right. So, so for 200 years, the well-regulated militia aspect of the Second Amendment tended to dominate 
for the Supreme Court. It tended to guide most of what they had to say. And what was radical about the Heller decision in 2008, which was authored by Antonin Scalia, was that he basically swept aside the first part of the sentence and said the second part of the sentence shall be operative. Um, so basically what happened was the pendulum was being held over here, and then the NRA and a lot of other people just took the pendulum and swung it all the way over here, and now they're holding it there. But probably the proper place is somewhere in the middle. If we have this level of, for instance, racial unanimity around an issue, we have a deep, terrible social problem. That it, anything we have racial unanimity on, we have a bad social problem, first of all. If we have unanimity between rural and urban, opposite positions, then clearly people are bringing different pieces of information and different experiences to answering the problem, and we need to have a look at that. Maybe the laws should be different in Chicago than they are in Indiana. And so there are ways and ways to think about that, and we need to stop um, thinking that there are only two choices. And, and in terms of what it's going to take, I mean, what serious social problem ever had a simple answer or a fast answer? You know, we are going to have to take a step back from this and be willing to dedicate some time, some commitment. We're going to have to be willing to work with people we don't necessarily like or understand. We are going to have to give up on the project of changing people's minds or telling them what they should or shouldn't think. And we need to work our way through this at like a family. As we try to do that, and, and Lucy, I want your thoughts on this, and we look to the impediments towards doing that. We talked geographically. Huh. We talked about, about um, your family traditions. And we saw people up there saying, my family for generations have had weapons. I grew up with firearms. We mentioned race in the film. And you have to be struck by the fact that as you watch the gathering of the NRA, you see very few, if any, black faces. If, if you look at the legislators, who for the most part are supporters of the NRA, and again, let's come back to, let's be cautionary here, let's come back to what Reverend Shank said. There are good people within that organization, people of goodwill. However, Lucy, you're out there traveling, how large an impediment is the notion of race to somehow crafting a, a, a solution to this? Uh, race is the central focus of what we see happening with gun violence in the country. I spend a great deal of time talking to uh, individuals all over the country. I spend a great deal of time in the gun states, the red states, the Republican states. And I can tell you the rhetoric that I hear from them is extremely, extremely disturbing. The, the rhetoric is basically that, you know, the government, meaning President Obama and his administration, are trying to come and take our guns away and tell us how to live our lives and what to do. And so people, I think, pretty much in the gun states have begun to hide behind their religion as a means to um, justify their fears. I see that all the time. Um, the first thing I have to do basically is disarm, verbally disarm people when I'm talking to them um, that are pro-gun rights uh, individuals. Um, you know, the first thing they say is, oh, well, they want, he, they want to take our guns away and they want to tell us how to live and what to do. And I have to all, always say, no, that is not the truth. 
but would you not agree with me that we have a systemic problem with the gun culture, with gun violence that has affected every stream of society? And they will say yes. And I will say to them, well, are you not bothered by that? And they will always say, yes, I'm very bothered by that. And I will say, well, would you not agree that without infringing upon an individual's Second Amendment rights to have a gun, and you appear to be a very law-abiding gun owner yourself, or if you're a hunter or a gun enthusiast, I'm sure you're very, you're very much a law-abiding gun owner, are you not? Oh, yes, I'm, you know, I teach my children how to hold their guns and, you know, and I train them and teach them, you know, how to use their guns. And, you know, we're teaching our children not to use them in the improper way. And I said, absolutely. I believe there are a lot of people in the country like you. However, would you not agree with me? There is an element in this country that is deciding to use their guns any way they want to at any point in time. Well, yes. So it's just a matter of bringing them to some consensus. It's a matter of disarming them verbally so that they understand that we're not trying to take your guns away. You can have the guns. We're not infringing upon your Second Amendment rights. But as a law-abiding gun owner and citizen and as a Christian of moral standing, would you not agree that something has to be done about the gun violence in this country? And almost every single time, they will say to me, yes, you're right. Well, how come no one, no one ever put it to me that way before? So it's all a matter of verbiage. It's all a matter of how you propose the gun culture and the gun violence and Christianity and roll it all into one. It really is that way. Most people will say to you, well, yes, if you put it that way, then maybe you know we really don't need to be worried about President Obama taking our guns away. Very, very quickly, and I know we're running out of time, um, I, back to the whole racial uh, question. Uh, I'm very concerned about race and the role that it plays because that large segment of American society who, for their own fears, want to possess guns to protect themselves, I have to ask the question, you have a list of those that you fear. Am I on that list because of the color of my skin? And where am I on that list? Because now you're telling me I need to be afraid of you. So do I arm myself in response to your fears? And what do we create in our society? What happens to the social contract that we have with government and with each other to live together in harmony? Let me wrap with this. The scripture said at the birth of Jesus, and the one translation really has it accurately, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. The other translation says, peace on earth amongst men of goodwill. And it's not until we bring people of goodwill together at the table to really start the conversation do we begin to challenge those of ill will. I can't, I can't imagine that there's a better way to end this conversation than with those comments. I said in the beginning that after watching a film that will make anybody think that we hope to continue that conversation with our magnificent panelists here and contribute to your thinking. And I think they did that. And once again, we should give a marvelous round of applause to all of you. 
You've been listening to a discussion from the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York, held following a screening of Abigail Disney's documentary film, The Armor of Light, currently airing on PBS as part of the Independent Lens series. For more about the film, go to armoroflight.com. Be with us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. And please share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org. WNET Up Next was brought to you by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. This edition with the special assistance of the Community Relations Department. I'm Tom Stewart.